I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Sex discrimination is not just something that happens with people. In many animal studies, males have historically been used more often than females, resulting in a significant sex bias that has snowballed since we started using mice and rats in research. Here to discuss this issue and what it means for patients is Liz Nunnemaker, Director of Animal Welfare for Charles River. Her background in veterinary medicine makes her passionate about conducting animal research to the highest standards of humane use and scientific utility. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. And I'll apologize in advance if I'm a little nasally. The allergy season is really bringing me down. I can't seem to get away from the pollen, and it's driving me insane, but a lot. Before we get started, could you tell me a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I um, I took the scenic route to get to where I wanted. Um, <laughs> I um, I actually me started. Too. <laughs> I, I started off as 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 a researcher, um, as a as a biomedical engineer, mm-hmm. and um, I became very interested in the welfare of, of animals um, that are used in research, and decided to go to vet school. Um, and eventually, I was I functioned as a clinical lab animal veterinarian for for quite a while, working in both academia, pharma, um, and the medical device industry, and became very, I started off very interested in, in the animal welfare piece, but mm-hmm. um, ultimately I really wanted to focus on, on just the welfare aspects um, associated with animal research. And, and fortunately I'm in a, in a position now where I can um, focus on the welfare piece. Um, the medicine is really important as well, but for me, um, the welfare piece is really near and dear to my heart. So can you tell us about what are the current regulations regarding sex parity in animal research and when were they changed? Yeah, so there there are a few out there. And um, surprisingly, this has been something that we've been aware of for a really long time now. Oh, I shouldn't say a really long time, mm-hmm. at least the last 10 years. Um, the NIH, or the, the National Institute of Health with, in the United States, was sort of the original leader in this. Um, mm-hmm. back, in, back in 2014, they uh, announced their initial policy aimed at integrating sex as a biological variable mm-hmm. uh, in biomedical research. And so research uh, applications or grant applications, excuse me, needed to include um, justification if they were only going to use one sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's been integrated for a while. The Canadian uh, Institute of Health and Research uh, followed thereafter, and I'm not sure of the exact year since, you know, being <laughs> being yeah. in the U.S. very U.S. centric. But they um, they took it a little bit further, um, not just integrating sex, but also gender. So it affects human studies as well as animal studies. And so those have been the two main funding agencies that have have integrated. Um, or addressed sort of the sex bias that we're seeing in research. Um, more recently, uh, the UK Research and Innovation Medical Research Council released guidelines, and I believe this was just in this past March. So it March, February or March, and they indicated by the end of the year um, that they were going to expect that sex be specifically addressed as an experimental design variable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that will be coming in the UK as well. But the European Commission in general has had this long-standing policy um, 
to, to look at uh, sex and gender um, and its relevance in experimental studies, but it wasn't, you know, specifically required mm. in grant applications. So it's, yeah, it's something that's been on our radar for a while, but it's becoming more and more common to be um, required by some of the larger funding agencies. Yeah. And I mean, we're not discounting the fact that there might be some experiments where you would only want one gender or the other. Exactly. So, you know, if you're testing birth control or something like that, but this is talking (laughs) about a drug that is intended for use in both men and women eventually. Yeah. Exactly. Or just understanding physiology in general. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So has the research world actually caught up with these regulations or are we still kind of seeing a lot of bias towards mostly male animals? Unfortunately, um, we are still seeing uh, quite a bit of bias in the literature. Hmm. Um, And and it's a little bit difficult to suss this out because um, there's larger reporting issues going on. And so when, uh, when research groups write up studies, they're not consistently indicating which sex they've actually performed their experiments in. So we don't always know, but mm-hmm. sort of, um, in general, about 75% of studies are done just in males when we do know what sex they were done in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, it's not, you know, crystal clear why this is why this is happening. Um, you know, I could venture to guess, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. We are, yep. <laughs> so, what are some of the reasons that researchers over rely on males? If you had to venture a guess, <laughs> I mean, I think some of this is is comfort level. Um, a lot of labs have long histories. Um, someone trained in a given lab, that lab only used male animals and, and so on and so forth. And, and it becomes this, this comfort. So, so there's the comfort level issue, but then there's concerns that the estrus cycle um, that's, that's demonstrated mm-hmm. by these females is going to increase the amount of variability that you're mm-hmm. going to see in these, in these studies. Um, and there have been a number of studies out there that have looked at the variability between males and unstaged Females, so we don't know, you know, what stage of the estrus cycle they're in, and a lot of this data actually suggests that the uh, variability that we see due to estrus cycles is no greater than that intrinsic variability that we're seeing in males to begin with. Mm. So, um, so, so the. So because of this, you know, misconception, um, there's this thought that. Uh, oh, we're going to have to automatically increase the number of animals we use to account for the estrus cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's, you know, that might be true in some situations. Um, I can't tell you that, you know, every single research model has been tested to see the effects of the estrus cycle. But I think there's a growing body of literature out there to suggest that um, this assumption just is not quite correct. Um, there's the, the other piece of this, though, is studies are typically are typically run in um, using pairwise tests, pairwise statistics. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to be looking at, so, you know, some robust sex difference that, you know, exists pulling males and females um, and just using these pairwise tests, you are going to have to use a very large number of animals. Mm-hmm. However, if, if you switch over to using more of a factorial design in your experimental design, you can actually account for these sex differences and not increase the total number of animals that you're using. So by by using smart experimental design and, and being a little bit more c- uh, creative and 
at interacting with uh, your biostatisticians, you can actually design studies that allow you to ask these more robust questions and not have to worry about any potential bias that may or may not be there due to the um, effects of the estrus cycle um, on variability. And you mentioned the three R's, and this is kind of why I put uh, scientific utility, that term in my intro. I feel like it's important to remember that part of the three R's is doing an experiment correctly the first time so that it doesn't have to be repeated over and over again. And if it's something that's going to be eventually used in people, we need that data on how it works in males versus females, or else we're just going to have to keep running the the studies again and using more animals. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's there are some good examples out there in the literature where the the data was only ever collected in you know cultured male cells, then male mm-hmm. animals, and then clinical trials that were predominantly done in males. And then when they get to the dosing strategies in females and they start seeing all these adverse events, they're like, oh man, we have to go back to the drawing board, which means they need to use even more animals to try and figure out what's going on. So if we address the sex bias issue from the Mm get-go, we can ultimately use fewer animals to answer uh, answer those same questions. Yeah. And we'll get into more in that in just a little minute. But, uh, what would you say about the excuse that since male animals have been predominantly used in research in the past, we need to continue that trend in order to compare modern experiments with historical controls? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a you know, very short answer to this. And I, I, I think that we can pretty safely say that our historical controls r- really are no longer sufficient. Um, mm-hmm. And if we want therapeutics that can safely be used in all genders, then we really need to expand our preclinical studies to include both sexes and our Mm -hmm. clinical trials to include all genders um, so that we can address some of these um, underlying issues and make sure that we have dosing strategies that are appropriate for the gender that they're ultimately going to be used in. Right. So besides, uh, uh, you know, what could be called patient effects, which we'll get to a little bit in later, what are some of the other scientific drawbacks of this research bias? Yeah, so we know, um, we do know that there is a lot of underlying differences between male and female mice. And I'm going to stick with mice just so that we don't get too lost in the weeds with all the different species. (laughs) But there, I mean, there's a lot of known sexual dimorphism um, in humans as well as our mice. Um, Mm -hmm. There's differences in the liver, just uh, if you look um, anatomically or uh, phenotypically, or uh, the level of gene expression, we see differences in not all, but many of the major body systems, adipose tissue, muscle, brain, liver. Um, Some examples where we've seen very clear differences are with um, patient patient-derived xenograft tumors, um, their mm. growth kinetics are really quite different between males and females. And they can get you know, much larger, much faster in male mice than female mice. Oh, and wow. so when you're, when you're developing treatments that are specific for your patient, um, if you take you know, a tumor out of a woman and you put it in a male, it's going to have very different um, growth kinetics than it than it may have in that female. And so Mm -hmm. being cognizant of those sorts of decisions. Um, Other examples are with cardiovascular disease. Um, We know that mortality rates for coronary heart disease and stroke 
are much higher in males. Um, mm-hmm. And we see these same tendencies in our male mice as well. Um, and so um, being being mindful of, you know, the sex that you're choosing and, and potentially using both sexes because, I mean, cardiovascular disease opens a, you know, that's a much bigger conversation because you right. know, there's pre and post menopause in women as well. Um, and so not forgetting, I know we're talking a lot about sex bias and that's the, the point of this, but there's also age bias um, in some of our models as well and, and being cognizant of the age of the animals um, that, we're, that we're using for these experiments. Yeah. It's funny to think that those types of issues are mirrored in both mice and people. Uh, I mean, because I think the normal untrained observer looking at a mouse would not be able to tell if it was a male or a female mouse on (laughs) first observation, but (laughs) these things actually do kind of parallel human development, which is interesting to think about. Yeah. So here's a chance for you to go on a little rant. What do you personally think about the issue of sex bias in research? (laughs) <laughs> so um i think sex bias is really just a small piece of um of a much larger um experimental design puzzle um there's a lot that that we need to think about when we're exper- when we are designing experiments and and this all ultimately boils down to the translatability Mm -hmm. um, and the utility of animal models. Because if we aren't designing our preclinical studies appropriately, how useful is that data? And and animal research continually comes on under attack because some of the work we do, frankly, isn't translatable to the the human clinic. And I think um, having better experimental design, more um, thoughtful inclusion of of these sex bias, age bias, um, mm-hmm. making sure you're using the right strains of rodents and whatnot are all really, really important to improving the translatability of, of animal research and the data that comes from our animal models. And as you said, that eventually translates into humans as well. Exactly. It's, it, this, a lot of this kind of parallels what I was discussing with my last guest um, last month, which was uh, the factor that animal diets play in the experimental design and how they don't often, um, some researchers don't take into account enough what their diet might contribute to the research itself and the, and the results. Yep. So it's just a matter of like, you know, they can make the, they can design these experiments to, you know, study these mice down to the chemical level, but all of the different variables that go into it need to be categorized and, and quantified. Yeah, exactly. So in your opinion, which groups do you think are best equipped to put pressure on researchers to make meaningful changes? Do you think it'll come from editorial boards or the government or somewhere else? Um, I actually think it's a a bit of a combination. Um, I think as the funding agencies um, are more and more of them are requiring that people um, identify sex bias and and using both sexes both sexes of mice in their studies when they do follow ups um, or when people turn in annual reports they need to be indicating in my opinion they should be <laughs> indicating that they are using both sexes and the data should represent okay, here's the data for both males and females, so that there's that transparency level with their funding agency. Um, The other piece of this comes from the editorial boards. Um, There's, you know, this saying, publish or perish. And so we know that 
for a lot of our science, for a lot of members of our scientific community to continue um, to have, you know, these long, fruitful careers, they need to publish. So if editorial boards start mandating that um, people indicate the sexes, the, the sex of the animals used um, mm-hmm. and use additional justification in the cases if they're only using one of those sexes, I think that could be a very powerful tool to um, improving, uh, improve reporting on the use of the the animal sex, but also put that additional pressure on um, researchers to use both sexes uh, in their experimental paradigms. Yeah. And so then what are some concrete examples of this bias harming patients? Like you mentioned the that males and females perceive pain differently, for example. Um, but I think there was also an example of uh, the drug Ambien not being tested heavily enough in females. Yeah. So Ambien is, or, or um, Zolpidem is, you know, sort of the, the, the role model drug that a lot of people talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it made its, its way to market. Um, but this is, this is one where they have really nice documentation where it was originally developed, like the initial screening was done in cell cultures that were of male sex origin. Mm-hmm. They were, um, it was only tested in male mice. And then the clinical trial was very skewed towards males. And they didn't, they didn't adjust the dose levels or the dose recommendations when it did finally um, get released to the market. And so very quickly, they started getting all of these adverse event reports from females that were, um, they were having these, you know, sort of hangover effects in the morning. They, you know, weren't able to drive. There's increased car accidents. And ultimately, they figured out um, over a period of time that the dosing was actually too high for women. But they didn't pick this up because they were only testing this in males all along. Mm. Um, similar to the to the Zolpidem, um, anticoagulants are a similar type of a story. Um, there's a couple of different drugs. The one that people may be most familiar with is low molecular weight heparin. Um, this induces, um, this is, you know, to help minimize clotting, but it can cause a dangerous thrombocytopenia. Um, and it does this more frequently for women mm-hmm. than men. Um, and it, it has to do with the pharmacokinetics of the drug in females versus males. And so, if these drugs are are studied initially in both sexes, um, they may be able to you know tease out these different needs and dosing strategies um, to help them identify uh, differences uh, between men and women and and have you know more specific dosing strategies so that you decrease the number of adverse events once a drug gets to market. Yeah. And you mentioned you mentioned cell cultures, and I think it's it's worth mentioning, even though we can't really get into it right now, is how important it is for there to be a diversity of a patient pool at pretty much all levels of the design of a drug and and its testing. Um, and hopefully, that's a topic I'll be able to get into in a different podcast. But do you think that that is connected with this as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Liz. This has been a great discussion. I appreciate yeah, your thank time. You. Thank you for having me.